0: Isaiah chapter 38 is where we are in our study as we go through the Bible. Um, Now, by the way, congratulations for making it thus far. Isaiah is a heavy book and we've been hitting all the woes and the brutal, you know, prophecies of Isaiah in the first section. And basically chapters 1 through 40 kind of gives us that heavy burden of the Lord, you know, woe unto you, uh, woe to the rebellious children of Israel, that's the heaviness But once we get up to chapter 40, it's going to start to shift gears, and uh, it's going to be much lighter and more joyful, and I'm kind of excited about that. So different is the last part of Isaiah that some people try to make the argument that it's a different Isaiah that wrote it all together. Uh, They call it, the the fancy academics call it the Deutero-Isaiah, two Isaiahs. Um, I don't agree with that philosophy or thought because because, uh, John the Apostle says it's one Isaiah, uh, when John wrote about that, he said, the very same Isaiah said, and he quoted from both sections of Isaiah and said, it's one Isaiah. So I agree with John who hung out with Jesus and was discipled by Jesus. To me, I trust John, not the guy with the cardigan and the pipe puffing away. Um, so all that to say, uh, we're going to see a second section of Isaiah, and it's going to sound very different, but I think it's written by the same guy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I think it's gonna be really great. It's gonna be a new chapter. So this Wednesday night, we're gonna be covering uh, the next couple of chapters and then probably the next week we'll be into that separate section that's gonna be really cool. But at the same time, I've got a tiny section here I wanna show you just from our upcoming Wednesday night study in chapter 38. And it's really a single verse. It might even be just a single word uh, that I wanna teach on this morning. And uh, I'll show you what that word is, because I think that what's going on here in chapter 38 is extremely applicable to today and what's going on around us. And I hope that the Lord will give us um, the grace to speak the word correctly, but I also pray that the Holy Spirit will give ears to hear uh, what the Spirit might say to His church today, because this might, again, be somewhat uh, controversial and people may not like what the Bible teaches about this, but that's never stopped us. We teach what the Bible teaches and I'm going to keep doing that, um, whether people are happy or not about that. But uh, I think that the person who listens to what God's word says and lets the word judge them rather than them judging the word, so rewarding. Your life will be better if you follow the Bible and do what the Bible says. So let's take a look. What's going on? Well, chapter 38, um, is, is part of a story that we began really in chapters 36 and 37. And that is on Wednesday night, we saw Isaiah uh, tell us the story, literally, as it, as it kind of turned out, there with the Assyrians, Sanhariv, you know, or Sennacherib, um, and uh, Ravshaka, the trash talker. remember that? We learned how that whole thing happened. And then 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army killed by a mighty angel of God. And it's an amazing story. So in chapter 36 and 37, we're coming off of this massive victory and brutal slaying of the enemy. And and Rabshakeh and those guys run off to Assyria with their tails between their legs. There were a few survivors from that death that took place that day. And they ran home totally freaked out. Hezekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem are celebrating its glorious. Now question, what happens after great victory in our faith and our walk with the Lord? Well, you can pretty much guarantee the enemy's not happy and he's going to have another challenge for us. Or even the Lord allows challenging times to come toward us when, when we've had a great victory. Then we don't think it's over. The battle's not done. There's still things we have to deal with. And that's the case with Hezekiah. Now, up to this point in Hezekiah's life, he's been an amazing king. Um, one of the truly best kings of Israel. Man, he did the right stuff and he tore down the idols of the pagan deities and he caused people to worship the Lord. He built this amazing tunnel that, uh, you know, basically is the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam, which you can go see today in Jerusalem. It's still there. You see the chisel marks of the, of the servants of Hezekiah who made this tunnel through solid rock. It's an amazing, amazing feat of engineering that they did to survive. I mean, Hezekiah did amazing stuff. And so now in chapter 38, suddenly he gets sick. He's got the coronavirus. Uh, Okay, maybe not the coronavirus, but he's got a deathly sickness and it's bad. So there he is at his palace, sicker than a dog. And so they say, call for Isaiah the prophet. And so Isaiah the prophet comes in and sees him. Now, um, this is amazing. You know, what do you hope that Isaiah is going to do? Maybe pray, oh Lord, heal poor King Hezekiah, your servant, uh, and make him healthy again. Um, But that's not what Isaiah does. Isaiah comes in, Hezekiah sees him, and Isaiah says, okay, Hezekiah, get your house in order. You're going to die. That's what Isaiah says. It, it, it kind of cracks me up because I do this, you know, from time to time, families will call, Brett, can you come visit us in the hospital? And, and uh, you know, we're in trouble, we need prayer. And What would you feel like if I walked into ICU with your family member and, and I, I looked at your situation? and Brett, pray for healing. Nope, he's gonna die. And uh, get ready, get your things in order. <laughs> That's what Isaiah did. And you'd be saying, man, get another pastor. Find somebody who's got some faith. And, you know, now, by the way, on that note, Does God heal every single time at at that moment when when a person wants people to be healed? There's there's whole groups of people out there, big movements right now that are all into this thing where he heals all the time. Um, If you pray the prayer of faith, then he will heal you. And if you're not healed right then, you're lacking in faith and you're the one who's the problem. Because God heals all the time, every time when it's faith. That's just not accurate. Now, if you wanna say that God heals all the time, for the believer. I I would say that's true. The question is when. He might heal you right this very second when we pray miraculously, and we've seen that happen many times here at Athey Creek. People totally miraculously healed by God right at that moment. We've also seen where the Lord heals over time through what we might call supernaturally natural processes, the body healing, that's a miracle in and of itself, and through medicine and doctors. Praise the Lord for that. But there's also the ultimate healing if a person eventually dies, that's healing. And uh, when you go to heaven, you're healed. So yes, we believe in healing 100% of the time, just not, we don't believe that, you know, I can name it and claim it right now. And with the prayer of faith, it's got to happen. The reason we know that to be true is Paul the apostle had an infirmity of the flesh, the Bible says. Look up the Greek word for infirmity. It's, it's sickness. He, was, he had something, a disease or a problem physically. And he prayed, Lord, would you heal me? Three times he prayed. And the Lord said, Paul, you're not going to be healed. Stop praying for that. You're going to have a thorn in your in your flesh is what it was called. And so Paul had to deal with that. Also, do you remember when Timothy had a stomach issue? Paul didn't say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. He didn't do that. He said, hey, why don't you drink a little wine for your stomach's sake? <laughs> have some friends that Make that their life, or see, the Bible says to drink wine. Um, but uh, that, that's, a, that's a, probably a misappropriation of that passage. Um, <laughs> the idea is he was sick, and uh, he, Paul didn't heal Timothy. Um, you know, he, he, there's so many funny things about this this have to be healing all the time. Don't, don't be sucked into that. But what we need to pray is, Lord, your will be done, whether you're going to heal this person or not, you know what's best. We do ask for you to heal our beloved brother or sister, but your will be done. That's the way you should pray. Now we're gonna learn that from Hezekiah here in a minute, that you gotta pray that way. Because if you demand, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you pray for. You see, Hezekiah is sicker than a dog. Isaiah says, get your house in order, you're gonna die. And so what does Hezekiah do? Well, that's where in chapter 38, he tells the story. Well, here's what I did. And he talks about it. And I, I just want to show you, we'll look at this, this whole description on Wednesday night, but I want to show you really what did Hezekiah say. And, and it's, a, it's a mindset that he had that I believe is so dangerous. And yet it's rampant today, this mindset. Let's check it out. It's Isaiah 38, verse 10. And there in Isaiah 38, 10, it says, this is Hezekiah, of course, speaking, telling the story. Isaiah 38.10, I said, in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. Do you see his attitude about what he heard from the Lord through Isaiah the prophet? Isaiah says, you're going to die, get your house in order. And he says, cutting off of my days. The cutting off. It's so harsh, like snip, snip cutting your life off. That's the way he was viewing it. Lord, you're cutting off my days. And he says, I'm going to go to the gates of the grave. What a bad outlook. See, a a believer should be saying, I'm going to the gates of heaven and I'm going to be with the Lord forever. But he says, I'm going to the gates of the grave and my life is being cut short is the idea. And then he says, I am deprived of the residue of my years. The word deprived is the word that I think is so appropriate for today, for you and me to consider. You see, here he feels like he's being deprived of what? Life. Now, here's where it gets real dangerous for Hezekiah. And I I worry for the dude because he's such a great guy and I love Hezekiah. And he's, he's the guy that I'm rooting for, you know, biblically as my Bible heroes go. Come on, Isaiah, you know, slap Hezekiah around a little bit and tell him, don't be thinking this way because it's a wrong way to think. What Hezekiah is saying, Lord, you are depriving me of my extended life. That's what what Hezekiah is saying. Uh, What do you mean, Brett? Well, here's the thing. If it were some guy with a sword coming to stick him through with a sword and kill him, well, you'd say, well, that guy's depriving Hezekiah of his life. But in this case, he's actually sick and he's really left to the mercy of the Lord, whether he's gonna be healed or die and go to heaven. And the Lord already spoke through Isaiah, Hezekiah, your time is up. You know, and you realize, wow, it's the Lord who determines when we die. Did you know that? Some people are troubled by that, that God knows your appointment. You have an appointment. The Bible says in Corinthians, it says, you know, it is appointed once for a man to die. You have an appointment with death. In fact, does God plan our death? I think the answer is yes. Now, but first thing I have to say is don't forget that God governs with infinite wisdom and power and, and everything that takes place, God knows what's going on. Don't forget that. And, and also don't forget He's good and He's kind and He's compassionate and loving. Sometimes we forget that part. So here's God who is the author of life and death. Don't believe me? Jot down in your notes these scriptures, Ephesians 1.11. It says there that God, and I I want you to um, think about this. It says, God works all things. Now, keep that in mind. All things means all things. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's no reason for us contextually, biblically, theologically to limit the all things there. But the Bible says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. His will is what he wants to have happen, his, what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish. And God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, so he works everything, including when we're born and when we die according to the counsel of his will. That's, that's to be assumed. For example, in Acts 17, 25, it says that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath, and everything. Um, what's that? That God is the one who gives breath to people, life. First Timothy six thirteen says this. Paul told young Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ. You see, this applies to the idea of, of giving of life, the sustaining of life, and the taking of life. It's all ordered by God. God's the one who determines all that. So when you acknowledge that biblically, that God's the author of life and death, knows your appointment when you're going to die, here's Hezekiah saying, Lord, I'm being deprived of my years. I'm deprived of the residue of my years, the last years of my life. You're taking them away from me. And maybe he doesn't acknowledge or realize that he's talking to God, but he is whether he knows it or not, because God's the author of life and death and the sustaining of life. And here he says, I'm being deprived. Deprived. So that's the single word. Are you a deprived person? Are you being deprived in any way, shape, or form? Well, tuck that away for a minute because we'll talk more about that. Let me ask you this question before we dive into the word deprived. Um, what would you do if you found out you were gonna die and you only had a few hours to live or a few days maybe? Like if you were Hezekiah and Isaiah says, yep, prepare your house, get everything in order because time's up, what would you do? I like what St. Francis of Assisi said when they, he was out there pulling weeds in the, in the garden and they said, hey, St. Francis, what would you do if you found out you were gonna die in a couple hours? What, what, what would you do in the last two hours? And he said, I would continue to pull weeds. <laughs> and I thought, that's great because there's such confidence and peace that he was doing the right thing and just being who he was supposed to be right at that moment. And I think that's, that's such a great, great thing. I heard, a, it reminds me, by the way, of another story. Um, there was, uh, it was King Louis XI in France. He was kind of a weirdo. He was into astrology and all you know, these astrologists and he was always consulting. He was just kind of a weirdo. But there was one astrologer that became sort of famous among his group of astrologers and became really popular because he made a prediction that actually came to pass. He said, by looking at the stars, he said, one of the maidens of the court um, is gonna die in eight days. And as it turned out, eight days later, the maiden died. And so King Louis like, this guy knows what he's doing. But it also made King Louis nervous and he was somewhat of a tyrant. And he thought, I can't have an astrologer that really tells the future, Uh, that could be dangerous. So he tells the soldiers, I'm going to call in this astrologer, and I want you guys, when I give you the signal, take him and throw him out the window, which, you know, is several stories up where the guy would splat on the ground, you know, that that was the plan. So the astrologer walks in, and Louis uh, XI, he says, you know, you're, you're becoming somewhat of a reputation of a guy who knows, you know, astrology, and you know the fate of others, the king said to the man. So tell me at once, he said, tell me your fate and how long do you have to live? <laughs> the astrologer looked at the soldiers around and at the king and he said, I shall die just three days before your majesty. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's brilliant. You got to give the guy credit. What's that? I'm going to die and then three days later you're going to die. So whenever I die, you're going to die three days later. I know the future. Well, the king. He said, oh, thank you, you're dismissed, and he let the guy go. And, and from that day forward, he was very concerned about the health and well-being of that astrologer. Um, you see, it's a, it's a funny thing when we, when we think about death and, and what if you could determine or know. This is the thing Hezekiah gets. He knows he's got just a few days or a few weeks at the most to live, and he freaks out. And what did he do when he found out he was about to die? He said, I am deprived. I am deprived of my years. Now the question is, is that true at all? The answer is no, he's not deprived. The definition of deprived, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Boy, that's an interesting addition to that definition. A person who's deprived is suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits, deprived. You know, it's interesting because um, this idea of being deprived, it starts to echo what our culture is screaming about right now. And deprived is a word you could use, but, you know, the opposite of being deprived might be privileged and there's, there's large groups of people that are, and you know, we, we've been through so much in the last few years, the Me Too movement and people who've been marginalized and mistreated and racism and all kinds of stuff that's happened to people and people have been abused and there's no question. And of course we need to fix those things. Um, we've been preaching that. Those of us that teach the Bible, we've been preaching about that for hundreds of, and even thousands of years now because the Bible teaches against all that. So that's of course what he's having. But here's the problem. There's a worldview right now that I believe is very Hezekiah-like and maybe is very, probably bad for culture. Um, in fact, I would say more than probably, I'd say one of the things that's sinking our culture is this idea that we're being deprived or some groups are being you know, deprived and other groups are privileged. And we think the answer is to take down the people of privilege and to put ourselves up or whoever's the deprived group or the marginalized group or the poorly treated group. And and there's this worldview of basically I'm a victim. We've been the victims of mistreatment. And so we've built our whole case and now, man, the world is changing and people are raging. And some people wonder what's the end of the story gonna look like? Because when when you try to intellectually look at the way this is gonna really roll out, is that even going to be possible? And it will will it? Well, the way we're going right now with privilege versus those deprived or those who've been victimized, will that work out? Like if you think about the way this thing shakes out, is it going to work out okay? As a person who likes to study history, I'm just going to say it, it never works out. Historically, we've never seen someone who's been mistreated or marginalized or whatever, and gets violently angry and stuff, it always blows up and becomes a disaster. So you say, well, Brett, what's the answer? I think the answer is found in the Bible, of course, always. Um, What's the answer? Rather than have the deprived mentality, maybe we should take on what the Bible teaches, and that is to have the fact that we are not deprived, but we're actually depraved. Just change the letter. We're not deprived. We're depraved. Depraved? What does that mean? Well, if you look that up in the dictionary, it means morally corrupt and wicked. That everyone is morally corrupt and wicked. That's the Bible. Um, Paul, the apostle, tells us that over and over again in his letter to Romans. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. And, and you know, even our best works, the good deeds we do, they're like filthy rags. We're depraved. Humanity is depraved. We deserve nothing. We've been deprived of nothing. If there's anything good, even small, and there might be people who have tons of good, but even if you have a smidgen of good, you're already overblessed than what you and I deserve. We are depraved. And what is it that we deserve? The Bible's clear. The wages of sin is eternal death in hell, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, and yet total burning and suffering. Does hell sound like a a pretty bad situation? You see, the biblical worldview is not to say, I have been deprived, but to say, man, I'm depraved, and I deserve total destruction, eternal death, and hell. You see, This really changes the way you think. If somebody treats you bad and you've been marginalized or you've been hurt or wounded by someone, you don't have to say, I've been deprived. You can say, well, at least I'm not burning in hell for all eternity. Like that's the biblical mentality to say, man, um, uh, this is great. I'm not frying in hell forever. Because that's what we all deserve. So are we really deprived? The answer, no. No. Hezekiah's thinking is all off here when he says, I've been, I'm being deprived of my years. And the Lord is the one who's saying, no, you're, you're gonna die. And the Lord could fix it. He could say, oh, you're gonna live. By the way, you say, Brett, what did happen with Hezekiah? Well, we'll see on Wednesday night the full story, but I'll just give you the quick version real quick. Um, Hezekiah, what does he do? Well, he says, I'm being deprived of my years. So he turns to the wall and he says, oh, Lord, please let me live who will sing your praises? None but my lips are singing praise right now. Please, there's more that I wanna do and accomplish and I wanna live, I wanna live. I wanna live, I wanna live. live. And he starts to tell the Lord that he really, 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 really wants to live. And so the Lord, you almost sense as we're gonna read it on Wednesday, the Lord's like, okay, okay. I'm gonna let you live for 15 more years. And you can almost hear Hezekiah, yes. Got my prayer answered. Thank you, Lord. But what's going on there? Well, we're going to find out that Hezekiah, man, he should have got why the kitten was good. What do you mean, Brett? Well, if you know Hezekiah, I told you already, up to this point in his life, man, he goes through this life with honors. What a great king and did everything wonderfully. The last 15 years of his life were a total disaster. Disaster? Yeah. Let me give you an example. Um, after he gets well, and the Lord heals him, the king of Babylon is going to send him like a nice card saying, hey, I'm glad you're well, get well quick kind of thing, you know, send him a Hallmark kind of thing. Well, Hezekiah was so moved. Wow, the king of this up and coming power, you know, the Assyrian was the world power at the time, but this up and coming little kingdom of Babylon, hey, that's cool. That king actually cares about me. So Hezekiah invites the king over to Jerusalem because he sent him a nice card. And so he shows them around. Hey, king of Babylon, check this out. Here's our, here's our city. Here's our, our our palace. Here's the temple. And look in this room. And this room is where we store all of our gold and our silver. Here's where we store our wealth and put all the... Showed them the whole place. And, and the Babylonians is like, okay, the gold is in that room. Thank you. And all this stuff, the wealth and your flocks and herds. Okay, it's all over. What happened? Well, you guessed it. King of Babylon said, thank you very much. And then they came and looted and destroyed and wiped out and took all the stuff that the Jews had there in Jerusalem. What a stupid tactical move of Hezekiah. What a horrible way for him to go down doing such a dumb thing. That happened in the last 15 years of his life. Another thing was um, you know, um, the next king, Hezekiah's son, was 12 years old when he began to reign. And, you know, however that happened, we don't know all the details, but the truth is, whenever he became king, it was 12 years. 15 years was the length Hezekiah had to live at the end. But at 12 years, his son began to reign, whose name was Manasseh. And Manasseh was the most evil, horrible king in all of Israel and Judah's history combined, not only was he the worst king, he he'd sacrifice babies on sizzling hot idols of a Moloch. Like this is the kind of thing. This king just does, does is going to get worse than, than you know Manasseh. But not only was he the most wicked king, but he also had the longest reign of any other king. He was over 50 years in the throne of Jerusalem, this evil wicked king of Manasseh. Man, Hezekiah goes down in those last 15 years as the most miserable, most kind of bummer part of his life. Had he just let the Lord do what he was planning, he would have gone straight to heaven, avoided the, the Babylonian thing, maybe even avoided, could have avoided having the most wicked king of all of Israel's history. Who knows? But the point is, he should have just said, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Well, Brad, he would have died then. See, that's the problem. You and I think that death is a bad thing. When as a believer, as a Christian, it's the best thing that's ever gonna happen to you. Now, I'm not saying we should go commit suicide or anything like that. Of course not. But I am saying that the day of your death as a Christian, that's why there the psalmist says in Psalm 116, 15, says that the, the, the precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And, and that's something that you and I have to kind of get on board with. The Lord sees our death as precious. Why? Well, we think it's so final. And, and we have the Hezekiah mentality that we're going to go to the grave, and our life is being cut short, and we're being deprived of life. But God says, no, um, you're actually living in death right now, and when you die, you're gonna come to new life in heaven. It's something that we should actually be looking forward to, not fighting against it. But Hezekiah says, I wanna live, I'm being deprived. Now, some of you might say, but that's all fine and dandy, you know, death and all that, but then what about cancer? If God orders our days and gives us life and sustains life, but also takes life, why does he have us go through cancer? Why do we have to go through painful sickness when we die? Why why does he, the answer, we don't have all the answers. We don't know the answers to that. But here's the thing that I would suggest, that God tells us over and over in his word that this life on this earth is preparing and equipping us for whatever he has for us in heaven. For billions of years of all of eternity, you and I are gonna live and serve in a, in a beautiful condition with God in all eternity. This life on earth somehow is preparing and equipping us for that. So who knows? Who knows what the Lord is doing? But I gotta say, you know, it is hard figuring this stuff out. You know, visiting a cancer patient in the hospital is bad enough. But if you ever, ever wanna be just heartbroken, go to Dornbecker. We're little three-year-old children who have cancer. Uh, that's a hard thing for me. That's probably the hardest thing for me to try to minister to people. I don't even know what to say or do um, other than say, man, it's, it's not about this life. Yeah, but Brett, why would God allow a child to go through suffering? Don't know for sure, but I would say that God is good and, uh, and could the loving Father be putting the final touches on the inner person Shaping and molding what he or she will be for the next billion years. Now, Paul gives us a hint about all this, by the way. He's, he he kind of puts it this way. He says, for our light affliction is just but for a moment. But it worketh a far more exceeding like weightiness in glory or in heaven. In other words, when you suffer in this lifetime, somehow that's going to give you a weightiness in the next lifetime. So let's just say you were marginalized. No, let's go radical. Let's say you were a slave back in the 1800s in the deep South in America. Man, you can't think of a much worse thing than that. Some people could say that's like horrible. It is, it is. But according to Paul the Apostle, he's saying that your affliction is bad as it is. And by, by the way, even the slave in the South would have a hard time holding up his condition to Paul the Apostle who was left for dead several times, shipwrecked over and over again, bitten by a poisonous viper, beaten and whipped like worse than slaves. Like it's a horrible situation. But Paul said, our light affliction, is just for but a a moment. But what does it do? It works far more exceeding weight in glory and eternity. So Paul is basically making this argument. I rejoice in tribulation. He says, it's a good thing when bad things happen to me. He doesn't say I'm deprived I've been marginalized, and he doesn't complain or 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 whine or you know shake his puny fist at God or at the privileged people that were were doing it to him. He just said, "You know what? I realize God is doing something that's going to matter in eternity, and this this light affliction, this life is just short. The next billion years, somehow, that's going to be a blessing. I wonder if some of us." you know, who are listening today say, man, I haven't had a lot of bad things happen to me. I wonder if in eternity, we're gonna be saying, man, I wish I would have been through more suffering on that lifetime because look at these people in heaven in eternity, they're they're being blessed off their socks because the Lord somehow pays it back. Our affliction is working something better in us. So the kid that's in Dornbecker that's dying of cancer, you say, how could that be good? Lord knows, Father knows best. And somehow, for the billions of years of eternity, that little child, that's going to pay off. The Lord's going to cover that. So meanwhile, instead of being people with a biblical worldview, saying, okay, we're going to rejoice in suffering. We're not going to be, you know, trying to shake our puny fists at God or be mad at the people who are privileged. Instead, we're going to say, it's not about me being deprived, it's about me being depraved. I'm a sinful, wicked person. I deserve much worse than what I'm getting right now, even though people are treating me badly. Now, some of you might be saying, Brett, what do you know about having to live in this world as a person with a different color skin? What do you know, Brett, about being a woman who's been marginalized or you know, had you know, mistreatment? What do you know, Brett, about being fat and ugly? Oh, wait, never mind. What do you know about, like you, we all have our things and we've all been treated badly for different things to varying degrees. And I've figured out, I'm pretty sure that we can't really determine how badly people have been treated or who's been marginalized more than others. And it's too complex to figure out who owes something to someone. And so what we actually realize as Christians of the Bible, no matter who you are, you, you, you shouldn't compare it to me, you should compare yourself to Jesus, who was treated horribly, marginalized, biggest racism issue I think you could ever argue is when the Romans hated the Jews so much that they'd slaughter them. It wasn't about enslaving them, it was about slaughtering them. And that's what they did to Jesus. The Romans hung him on a cross with nails in hands and feet. I mean, nobody can compare to Jesus and what he went through. So rather than me sitting around saying, victim, I'm a victim, or I've been marginalized or I've been treated badly or whatever, instead to say, man, I'm not deprived. I'm depraved. I'm a sinful, wicked person. And thank the Lord I'm not in hell for all eternity. And I, as a Christian, as a believer, have the hope of heaven and my suffering here and now, praise the Lord, it's going to work in me something that's better for all of eternity. You see, Hezekiah has the attitude of a lot of people today. I'm being deprived of my years. And the truth is, he was just totally off on that one. Nobody was depriving him of his years. God was trying to bless him and take him home to be to heaven. But instead, he pushed, I want to live. I want to live. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you more more years. His permissive will rather than his perfect will. I, I see a difference there. Sometimes the Lord says, here's my perfect will. But we say, well, we don't want that because we're being deprived and so we demand and the Lord sometimes will give you what you ask for. Be careful, be careful what you ask for. Um, There were other people who thought they were being deprived in the Bible and I could go on and on with illustrations. For example, what about the children of Israel? As they'd been freed by the Lord from slavery, they were out there in the wilderness wandering and they were eating bread from heaven, manna, manna, and, and they were drinking water from a rock and God was sustaining life. But what did they say? We're being deprived. What do you mean deprived? We're not, we, we, we miss having the, the good food from Egypt. We remember the glorious days in Egypt when we used to eat onions, leeks, and melons from Egypt, which we didn't eat freely. Eh, no, you didn't eat freely. You were enslaved in Egypt. Yeah, but we, we didn't have to eat this, and this is what they called it, loathsome bread. What did they call loathsome? That which the Lord was providing for them. He was giving. They didn't have to go to Costco with the mask on. They just got up from their tent and reached on the ground and picked up manna and had breakfast, free food from heaven, sustaining life. Bible tells us the ladies would cook up the manna. They'd make it into cakes and beat it into a mortar and make stuff. You know, they were making banana nut bread, I'm sure, and manicotti and all kinds of things. But but uh, they said, "We're sick of this loathsome bread. We want meat." We want meat, and over and over they said we're being deprived. And so the Lord says, "Okay, I'm going to give you what you're asking." And so you remember the story: little quails from heaven came down, and they all gathered, you know, baskets full of these little quail birds, and they were just feverishly eating the meat. They're we want meat. They finally got me. They're eating the meat, and the Bible says they ate the meat, and eventually it came out their nostrils. Wow. Um, Anybody up for some Chick-fil-A after church? (laughs) Because that's what was going on in Israel. It says here in Psalm 106 verse verse 13, it says, then the Jews soon forgot his works, saving them from Egypt, taking them out of slavery, feeding them manna and water. They soon forgot the Lord's works and they waited not for his counsel, but they lusted exceeding in the wilderness. What were they lusting after? Not sex. In this case, they were lusting for meat. Numbers chapter 11. It says, They fell lusting exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Listen, and he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. That's God's permissive will rather than his perfect will. His perfect will is man, I'm giving you manna, bread from heaven, and it's life sustaining, healthy, good, it's going to be awesome. But they said, we want meat. So he gave them their meat and it came out their nostrils and he, and he sent leanness to their souls. Their souls were not satisfied. They were unhappy even though they got their request. That's the problem when you and I demand our way with God. Sometimes the Lord will say, okay, I'm giving you your own little miniature sovereignty. You can get, sometimes get your way, but it's not gonna be good. That was Hezekiah. There was another guy in the Bible who thought everything was against him, that he was being deprived um it's a it's a longer story but it's a it's a huge huge illustration of what I'm talking about. Remember Jacob, he had the 12 sons, Joseph was his favorite, he gave Joseph the coat of many colors, and he sent his son Joseph out to his brothers to find them. When he finds them, the brothers go, oh, "Brother, there's Joseph, our dad likes him better than he likes us." Look, they gave he gave them a, a, a fancy coat. So they took off his coat, threw him in a pit to die, like a deep, you know, dungeon pit. And and then they put goat's blood on the coat and said, dad, sorry, Joseph's dead. He was killed by a wild beast. Here's his coat. And Joseph's like, oh no, my favorite son. Well, then his last son, Benjamin, became his new favorite. And um, meanwhile, Joseph was in this pit. and, And then the brothers thought, why should we let him die when we could sell him as a slave? So they take Joseph up out of the pit, sell him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites, these gypsy people, take him down to Egypt where they sell him as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was the Egyptian, sort of the general of the army of the Egyptians. Powerful man, had quite an estate. And Joseph was now his slave. But, you know, Joseph wasn't a guy saying, you know, uh, he wasn't chanting, you know, my life matters and I've been treated badly and I'm, I'm a slave. Slavery should be abolished. He didn't do any of that. You know what he did? This is crazy. This is the biblical model. And we see this over and over again. He instead said, I'm a slave. I was mistreated. I was, I was, you know, sold as a slave by my brothers, but you know what? I'm going to be the best slave I can be. That's what he did. And, and Potiphar looked at Joseph and said, this guy's awesome. And so he raised Joseph up and said, Joseph, you're going to be in charge of my whole house. And the Lord used Joseph there, but Potiphar went off to battle for the Egyptians. Meanwhile, Mrs. Potiphar, she was a little bit um, kooky and she wanted to sleep with jo- Joseph. And so she kept making passes at him. But eventually Joseph's like, she grabs his coat, come and sleep with me. And Joseph wiggles out of his coat and runs for his life. Good advice for you men and women that are tempted to commit adultery with someone else. you, sh- you should do what the Bible says, run. The Bible says flee fornication. There's a reason, it'll destroy your life. Joseph knew that, so he runs and she takes his coat and she cries out, rape, this man tried to rape me. Falsely accused, they take Joseph and throw him into prison. Now, by the way, I think Potiphar knew his wife and I think he knew Joseph and I think he believed Joseph but didn't believe his wife. Why do you believe that? Because if you were a slave in Egypt at that time and you tried to rape somebody of royalty or power, they would have killed you instantly. But instead, Potiphar throws him into the prison. So what does what Joseph say? I've been marginalized, I've been treated wrongly, people of privilege have treated me badly. Nope. Joseph Joseph says, I'm gonna be the best prisoner I can be. This is where God's got me now. So I'm gonna do. and, and the, the keeper of the prison said, This guy's awesome, and makes him in charge of the whole prison, even though he's still a prisoner. He he's like the head prisoner. And and if you read the story, he's going around encouraging other prisoners and and, and interpreting their dreams and doing all kinds of stuff. Well, one day, one of the prisoners gets out and is standing before Pharaoh, at that time, the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh has a dream, and he says, man, can't anybody tell me the meaning of my dream? And they're like, well, there's this dude over in prison. And so they get Joseph out of prison. Joseph tells the king the meaning of the dream and what what to do about it. And, and, And Pharaoh says, you are an impressive dude, you're gonna be second only unto me. So now Joseph goes from being thrown in the pit, to being a slave, to being a prisoner, to now being the second most powerful man in the world. And Joseph, in his wisdom, grows mighty in Egypt, and he walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, he speaks the Egyptian tongue, and he shaves all his hair, so he doesn't look anything like a Jew, he looks like an Egyptian guy. Well, famine fills the world, and people from all over the world find out that there's a guy that's wise in Egypt, and he's got silos of food. That's Joseph. And so Jacob, this is years and years later, Jacob, Joseph's father, says to his sons, listen, we're starving to death. Go to Egypt. There's this guy down there that's got all this food. Bring some money, buy some food. So the brothers go down there, and they bow down before this ruler in Egypt, Joseph, And they don't realize that's their brother because he's walking like an Egyptian, talking like an Egyptian. And so they're they're asking for, Joseph says, these are my brothers. What am I gonna do? And so he wants to see if they're still the rascals they once were and he puts them to the test. He says, I think you guys are thieves. And he takes one of them, Simeon, puts in him an Egyptian prison and says, I'll give you your brother back, but you need to go home, ask your father to bring your youngest brother I want to see your youngest brother. And I think Joseph's saying, I wonder if Benjamin's still alive because Benjamin wasn't with him. The brother's like, oh boy. So they leave Simeon in Egypt. They go back up to Israel, talk to Jacob and say, Jacob, this guy in Egypt, he wants, to see, he wants to meet Benjamin and he's got Simeon in prison and man, we're in trouble. And what does Jacob do? What does he think? This is where the, the crux of the story gets really important for you to see. Because at this point, what's Jacob's worldview? What is he thinking about his situation? The answer, he thinks he's deprived. The word he uses isn't deprived. It's a word called bereaved. Let me read it to you. It's it's Genesis 42, 36, where Jacob responds to the brothers saying, we got to go back to Egypt with Benjamin. Here's what Jacob says. Jacob, their father, said unto them, me, have you bereaved of my children? Joseph is dead. Simeon is dead. And now Benjamin's going to be taken away. Gonna be dead is the idea. All listen to what Jacob says. All these things are against me. That's what Jacob, That's what Jacob says. Everything's wowsy wowsy woo woo. Woe is me. Everything's against me. Everybody else is privileged, but I am being deprived. That's not what's happening. Everything that Joseph or pardon me Jacob is thinking is totally incorrect. Is Simeon dead? No, he's alive and well. Joseph's protecting him in Egypt. Is Joseph dead? No, Jacob's wrong. Joseph's the second most powerful man in the whole world at the time. Not a slave, not in a pit, not dead. And then was Benjamin gonna be killed? No, in fact, all these things were working for him. Let me put it this way. All these things were working together for the good. (laughs) Does that ring a bell? God was, it seemed like everything was against him, but actually everything was for him. And he was just plain old wrong. And so are people in all of humanity that think that everything's against them and that they've been marginalized and mistreated. No, we're not deprived. We're depraved. We all deserve death and hell. That's the biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview says that even though we're depraved and we deserve death and hell, we have a loving God who's going to make it all work out in the end. When we get to heaven, even my suffering and marginalization and abuse and mistreatment that I've received here and now, God's going to work that together to make me a heavyweight in all of eternity. And Jesus talked about this. You know, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become, the what's the word? You think it's servant. It's actually Slave. You must become a slave and the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is stuff that Jesus teaches about. It's all throughout the Bible. What I'm talking about is a worldview that looks nothing like what we're thinking and doing today. And I'm sad to say, but a lot of the church is is being sucked into this victimization mentality and that that we're being deprived or people groups are being deprived. No, we're all depraved. We're depraved and we deserve death and hell, but we put our trust in the Lord and we're gonna do our best to serve the Lord. By the way, I told told you a little bit about historically, those that try to fight for all this, the the end of that never really works out very well. But the people that just kind of roll with it like Joseph, it's funny how the Lord just kind of works it out, not only in the second life when we're in heaven, but even right now. Read books like Up From Slavery. There's a guy that had a biblical kind of mindset. He wasn't the one saying, I've been deprived. And I've done this. Man, there's, there's so many amazing people in this world who've come up out of people who've treated them horribly in horrible situations. But they didn't surface up out of trouble by being angry at everybody who's been wrong at them or bitter or furious or warring. It's not, that's not the way out of that hole. The biblical worldview goes contrary to what the world is saying right now. And if you're part of this victimization culture, uh, that we're being deprived, man, I would just advise you think biblically. Don't take my word for it. Read your Bible. Go with the heart that God, what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't fight for his rights, Jesus gave up his rights. Philippians chapter two says that he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a slave, made himself in the likeness of men, and was obedient even to the suffering of the cross. That's the attitude, that's the mindset that we need to have all of us as Christians, whether you've been not treated badly or if you've been marginalized and hated by other people, doesn't matter. The biblical worldview. Now, the reason this is important, because some of you are saying, you know, well, some people have been marginalized and hated, others haven't. But here's the thing I predict, uh, you know, and I'm not making a prophecy or anything like that, but I think the way I see things going right now in our culture, I think things are going to get worse for the Christian. I think maybe even in our lifetime, and maybe even in short order, We're going to start, we're starting to see hints of this right now where the church is the problem in the worldview and Christians are really becoming more and more hated. You know, it's interesting because the Bible says in the last days, they'll begin to really hate and persecute the church. Um, This was a promise from God in 2 Timothy 3, 12. Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a name it and claim it promise that you can stick to your mirror, pin to your corkboard and memorize that all who live godly will suffer persecution. You know, this is an interesting thing that we live in a day where I think becoming a a Christian and living as a Bible-believing Christian, you're going to be hated among the world. And and, and the problem is so many Christians have been raised up by parents with this entitlement sort of attitude. And and that we need to fight for our rights and stand up for this and stuff that. But, but really, Jesus said, deny yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. The Bible just goes totally opposite to the narrative the world is pushing today. And I wonder if you and I should perhaps rethink a little bit of our position. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a pacifist, and I don't think you should you know, protect your home and your family and all that stuff. That, I'm not into that. But there is a mentality of just saying, um, man, we're just gonna fight back On every level. When really, man, I don't see Jesus modeling that. And I don't see this worldview of I've been deprived. That's not biblical. We are depraved sinners. And then when you accept Jesus Christ and you're forgiven of your sins, you move from depravity to salvation. And the Lord is going to work out whatever whatever things you've missed out on in this life, however badly you've been treated in this life, the Lord's going to make it all come out in the wash in all eternity. And this life is just a blip on the screen. Eternity is billions and billions of years of joy and glory. That's what we have to look forward to. So my challenge to you is really pretty simple. Deprived or depraved? It's a worldview. When you take being deprived, you're gonna lose that battle, I guarantee. But if you come up and say, no, I'm depraved. I'm a sinner who deserves death and hell. But by God's grace, he saves me through faith that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And because of that, I'm privileged that I get to go to heaven. That's what grace is. God's showing us undeserved, unearned favor. And that kind of privilege goes to anyone who accepts Christ and believes. And you'll be saved and go to heaven. It's not about this life. It's about the next If you're not a Christian, if you've yet to accept Christ, you're still in your sin, you're still depraved, and you're still, no matter what you win in this world as far as rights or privileges or whatever, it's still a lose-lose. You need to be born again. Jesus said you were born in sin. You need to be born again into life. And for that to happen, you need to accept what God does for humanity. God loved you so much that he says, you're depraved, so I'm going to die for your sinfulness, I'm gonna pay your penalty. Instead of you paying your penalty, hell and death, I'm gonna die on the cross for your sins. And then Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10 says, when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, not just a mouth, but a, a heart issue, you're believing and confessing, Lord, I'm a sinner. That's repentance. I repent of my sins, knowing that I'm a sinner, it's wrong and I've done evil. Then I accept the work of the cross that you died for me. And then I also believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus raising from the grave is his confirmation of who he said he was going to be. Had he not risen from the grave, we couldn't really be sure that he was the one who could save the world. But when he did this, he said, this is the one sign I'll show you. You destroy this body. Three days later, I'll raise it up from the grave. That's what Jesus did. And that's why the world was changed from that day forward. Otherwise, he would have been some Jew killed on a cross by the Romans, and it would have been forgotten in history. But when Jesus rose from the grave, it turned the world upside down from that day forward. Um, I believe it turned the world right side up, actually. (laughs) We were already upside down. And and by believing in Christ, man, you have the hope of heaven and eternal life. And you might join the, the company of all the followers of Jesus who are marginalized, hated, and enslaved. Jesus was hung on a cross. Peter was hung on a cross only upside down. Thomas, the guy they called the doubter, who I think was actually an awesome dude, he was beaten over the head with a club. James, the apostle, was sawn in half lengthwise, torturously for his faith in Christ. You know, John the apostle is the only one that didn't die a martyr. He almost did. They tried to boil him in a pot of oil, but somehow God miraculously protected John and he didn't die. So they they took him and threw him on a deserted island, or you know, a desert island of Patmos, and um, and there he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing book; you should read it sometime. But all that to say, the followers of Christ they do they do suffer, they are marginalized and they are hated, and racism has been acted out upon them. That's that's throughout all of history. But rather than them demanding and yelling and being screaming and stuff, what they ended up doing was saying, we're going to trust the Lord and we're going to pray and we're going to know that we have heaven to look forward to. That's the biblical worldview. I would challenge us to not let ourselves be sucked in to the world's way. We're being deprived. I'm a victim. I'm entitled to better things. Nope we're entitled to death and hell. And God, by his grace, has said, I will forgive your sins and save you and send you to heaven. That's there for the taking. Would you bow your heads, please? As we finish up this service today, if you're one who uh, who's yet to accept Christ, maybe you don't know if you're a Christian, um, can I just encourage you right now to confess that Prayer of faith. It's a confession. It's it's like when a person becomes a, a citizen of a country, they they hold up their right hand and they say a, a, a thing. This this is you with a much more powerful meaning than becoming a citizen. Becoming a citizen of eternity through Jesus Christ is to is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, that He died and rose from the grave. So you you pray that Lord, I'm a sinner. You pray that right now, I repent of my sins and I believe that you died for me and that you rose from the grave. Thank you for saving me. Just pray that. Maybe throw in that prayer, Lord, help me to walk with you. Ask him, Lord, help me to have a biblical worldview, because that's the only way to go. And then know this, that you're saved by God's grace. Well, all I did was pray to prayer in faith, believing, and that's going to save me? Yes. Yes. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. That's what the Bible talks about, Ephesians 2. So if, that, if that's you, you just accepted Christ and you're saved. Well, man, God bless you this week and we'll see you Wednesday night. Until then, Lord bless you.